0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of pelvic ring fractures from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. The mechanism for pelvic ring fractures is typically high energy blunt trauma. The mortality rate is 1 to 15% for closed fractures and as much as 50% for open fractures. Hemorrhage is the leading cause of death overall. Keep in mind that closed head injury is the most common cause of death for lateral compression injuries. There is an increased mortality associated with a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 on presentation, age of greater than 60 years old, increased injury severity score or revised trauma score, need for transfusion greater than 4 units, and a higher Young-Burgess classification grade. Associated orthopedic injuries with pelvic ring fractures include a chest injury in up to 63% of cases, long bone fractures in 50% of cases, and spine fractures in 25% of cases. Associated non-orthopedic injuries with pelvic ring fractures include urogenital injuries where sexual dysfunction can be found in up to 50% of cases as well as head and abdominal injury in 40% of cases. With respect to prognosis of pelvic ring injuries, there's a high prevalence of poor functional outcome and chronic pain. Poor outcomes are associated with SI joint incongruity of greater than one centimeter, a high degree of initial displacement, malunion or residual displacement, leg length discrepancy of greater than 2 centimeters, non-union, neurologic injury, and urethral injury. With respect to pediatric pelvic ring fractures, children with open triradiate cartilage have different fracture patterns than do children whose triradiate cartilage has closed. For example, if triradiate cartilage is open, the iliac wing is weaker than the elastic pelvic ligaments resulting in bone failure before pelvic ring disruption. For this reason, fractures usually involve the pubic rami and iliac wings and rarely require surgical treatment. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. Specifically, we'll talk about the osteology, ligaments, vascular anatomy, and neurologic anatomy. With respect to the osteology, the pelvis is a ring structure made up of the sacrum and two innominate bones. Stability is dependent on strong surrounding ligamentous structures. Displacement can only occur with disruption of the ring in two places. Keep in mind that neurovascular structures are intimately associated with the posterior pelvic ligaments, so have a high index of suspicion for injury of the internal iliac vessels or the lumbosacral plexus. With respect to the ligaments, let's talk about the anterior ligaments, the pelvic floor, and the posterior sacroiliac complex, otherwise known as the posterior tension band. With respect to the anterior ligaments, these are the symphysial ligaments which resist external rotation. With respect to the pelvic floor, you have the sacrospinous ligaments and the sacrotuberous ligaments. The sacrospinous ligaments resist external rotation, while the sacrotuberous ligaments resist shear and flexion. Moving on to the posterior sacroiliac complex or the posterior tension band, these are the strongest ligaments in the body. They are more important than the anterior structures for pelvic ring stability. Again, the posterior sacroiliac complex is more important than the anterior structures for pelvic ring stability. The anterior sacroiliac ligaments resist external rotation after failure of the pelvic floor and anterior structures. The interosseous sacroiliac ligaments resist anterior posterior translation of the pelvis. The posterior sacroiliac ligaments resist cephalad caudad displacement of the pelvis, and the iliolumbar ligaments resist rotation and augment posterior SI ligaments. Moving on to the vascular anatomy, the common iliac system begins near L4 at the bifurcation of the abdominal aorta. The external iliac artery courses anteriorly along the pelvic brim and emerges as the common femoral artery distal to the inguinal ligament. The internal iliac artery dives posteriorly near the SI joint and divides into the posterior division and the anterior division. The posterior division gives off the superior gluteal artery, and the anterior division becomes the obturator artery. The corona mortis is a connection between the obturator and the external iliac systems. There's a mean distance of 6.2 centimeters from the pubic symphysis. The venous plexus in the posterior pelvis accounts for 90% of the hemorrhage associated with pelvic ring injuries. As far as the neurologic anatomy, the lumbosacral trunk crosses anterior to the sacral ala and the SI joint. The L5 nerve root exits below the L5 transverse process and courses over the sacral ala two centimeters medial to the SI joint. Moving on to the classification of pelvic ring injuries, The ones to know include the tile classification and the Young and Burgess classification. The tile classification is divided into three types. A is stable, B is rotationally unstable but vertically stable, and C is rotationally and vertically unstable. Each of these are further subdivided into subtypes 1, 2, and 3. So a tile A1 is a fracture not involving the ring that is an avulsion fracture or an iliac wing fracture. A tile A2 is a stable or minimally displaced fracture of the ring, and a tile A3 is a transverse sacral fracture, which also corresponds to a Denis zone 3 sacral fracture. Moving on to tile type B, which again are rotationally unstable but vertically stable, a tile B1 is an open book injury, which is also referred to as an external rotation injury. A tile B2 is a lateral compression injury, which is also referred to as an internal rotation injury. A tile B2 is further subdivided into the subtypes B21 and B22. A tile B21 is a lateral compression injury with anterior ring rotation displacement through the ipsilateral rami. A tile B22 is a lateral compression injury with anterior ring rotation displacement through the contralateral rami, otherwise known as a bucket handle injury. And finally, a type B3 is a bilateral injury. Moving on to tile type C, which again is rotationally and vertically unstable, a tile C1 is unilateral and is subdivided into three subtypes, C11, C12, and C13. C11 is a unilateral injury with an iliac fracture, C12 is a unilateral injury with a sacroiliac fracture dislocation, and C13 is a unilateral injury with a sacral fracture a tile C2 is a bilateral injury with one side type B and one side type C. And finally, a tile C3 is a bilateral injury with both sides being type C. Moving on to the Young and Burgess classification, this is divided into anterior-posterior compression or APC type pelvic injuries, lateral compression or LC type pelvic injuries, and vertical shear injuries. So anterior-posterior compression or APC pelvic ring injuries are subdivided into three types: APC1, APC2, and APC3. APC1 is described as symphysis widening of less than 2.5 centimeters. APC2 is symphysis widening greater than 2.5 centimeters. It also has anterior SI joint diastasis, but the posterior SI ligaments are intact. An APC2 is also described as disruption of the sacrospinous and sacrotuberous ligaments. An APC-3 is disruption of the anterior and posterior SI ligaments, otherwise known as an SI dislocation. APC-3 injuries also have disruption of the sacrospinous and sacrotuberous ligaments. APC-3 injuries are associated with a vascular injury. Moving on to lateral compression pelvic ring injuries, these are also divided into three types. An LC-1 is an oblique or transverse ramus fracture and ipsilateral anterior sacral ala compression fracture. An LC2 is a rami fracture and ipsilateral posterior ilium fracture dislocation, otherwise known as a crescent fracture. And an LC3 is an ipsilateral lateral compression fracture and contralateral APC, otherwise known as a windswept pelvis. A common mechanism for an LC3-type injury is a rollover vehicle accident or a pedestrian versus auto. Finally, a vertical shear type injury is a posterior and superior directed force and is associated with the highest risk of hypovolemic shock that is in 63% of cases and has a mortality rate of up to 25%. Physical exam with pelvic ring injuries, patients may have symptoms of pain and inability to bear weight. Physical exam should include inspection, evaluation of the skin, neurologic exam, urogenital exam, as well as vaginal and rectal examinations. On inspection, you should test stability by placing gentle rotational force on each iliac crest. This has low sensitivity for detecting instability and make sure to perform this only once. You should also look for abnormal lower extremity positioning, for example, external rotation of one or both extremities or a limb length discrepancy. As far as skin evaluation, you should look for scrotal, labial, or perineal hematoma, swelling, or ecchymosis. You should also look for flank hematoma, lacerations of the perineum, or degloving injuries, like a Morel-Laval lesion. Neurologic exams should rule out lumbosacral plexus injuries, where L5 and S1 are most common. A rectal exam should be done to evaluate sphincter tone and perirectal sensation. Up to 10-15% to 15% of patients will sustain neurologic injury. On the urogenital exam, the most common finding is gross hematuria. This is more common in males, specifically 21% of cases in males and 8% of cases in females. As far as vaginal and rectal examinations, this is mandatory to rule out occult open fracture. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, an inlet, and an outlet view. The AP of the pelvis is part of the initial ATLS evaluation. You should look for asymmetry, rotation, or displacement of each hemipelvis. The AP film may provide evidence of an anterior ring injury that needs further imaging. An inlet view is when the x-ray beam is angled 40 degrees caudad, or maybe as little as 25 degrees. This is considered an adequate image when S1 overlaps the S2 body, for example perpendicular to the S1 end plate. The inlet view is ideal for visualizing the anterior or posterior translation of the hemipelvis, internal or external rotation of the hemipelvis, widening of the SI joint, and sacral ala impaction. An outlet view is done when the x-ray beam is angled approximately 40 degrees cephalad, but maybe as much as 60 degrees. An adequate image is considered when the pubic symphysis overlies the S2 body. An outlet view is ideal for visualizing vertical translation of the hemipelvis, flexion slash extension of the hemipelvis, and disruption of the sacral foramina and location of sacral fractures. As far as findings on plane films, Radiographic signs of instability include greater than 5 mm of displacement of the posterior sacroiliac complex, presence of posterior sacral fracture gap, or avulsion fractures, that is the ischial spine, ischial tuberosity, sacrum, or transverse process of the fifth lumbar vertebrae. A CT is a routine part of pelvic ring injury evaluation. It has better characterization of posterior ring injuries, it helps define comminution and fragment rotation, It helps visualize the position of fracture lines relative to the sacral foramina. A CT is also helpful to reveal radiographic signs of sacral dysmorphism, which include anterior upsloping of the upper sacral ala, irregular non-circular sacral nerve root tunnels, residual S1 disc, and a tongue-in-groove SI joint. As far as other studies to get in the setting of pelvic ring injuries, serum labs include a hemoglobin, serum lactate, and base excess. With respect to initial management and resuscitation of pelvic injury patients, as far as bleeding source, an intra-abdominal bleeding source is present in up to 40% of cases. Other sources include intrathoracic, retroperitoneal, extremity, specifically the thigh compartments, and pelvic sources of bleeding. Common sources of hemorrhage include venous injury in 80% of cases, which is secondary to shearing injury of the posterior thin-walled venous plexus, and this leads to retroperitoneal hematoma, which can hold up to 4 liters of blood. Other common sources of hemorrhage include bleeding cancellous bone. Uncommon sources of hemorrhage include arterial injury, which occurs in 10-20% to 20% of cases. The superior gluteal artery is the most common, and this is seen in a posterior ring injury with an APC pattern. Other arterial injuries can include the internal pudendal injury, this is typically from an anterior ring injury from a lateral compression pattern, or it could also be the obturator artery, which is also from a lateral compression pattern. Treatment of bleeding includes resuscitation, pelvic binder slash sheet, external fixation, as well as angiography slash embolization. With respect to resuscitation, the ratio of packed red blood cells, fresh frozen plasma, and platelets ideally should be transfused in a 1 to 1 to 1 ratio. This ratio has been shown to improve mortality in patients requiring massive transfusion. A pelvic binder-slash-sheet is indicated as the initial management of an unstable ring injury. Contraindications include a hypothetical risk of over-rotation of the hemipelvis and hollow viscous injury, like a bladder injury, in pelvic fractures with an internal rotation component, specifically a lateral compression-type pelvic injury. With that being said, no clinical evidence exists of this complication occurring. As far as pitfalls for using a pelvic binder slash sheet, a binder can mask pelvic injuries creating false negative radiographs and CT images. Stress examination under anesthesia may be indicated in patients who present to the trauma bay in a pelvic binder in the setting of hemodynamic instability and negative pelvis radiographs slash CT scan. External fixation is indicated for pelvic ring injuries with an external rotation component, for example an APC injury or a vertical shear injury. External fixation is also indicated for an unstable ring injury with ongoing blood loss, and keep in mind that an X fix should be placed before emergent laparotomy. Contraindications to external fixation include an ileum fracture that precludes safe application, and it's also contraindicated in the setting of an acetabular fracture. As far as the indications for angiography slash embolization, this is controversial and based on multiple variables, including the protocol of the institution, the stability of the patient, proximity of the angiography suite, as well as availability and experience of the interventional radiology staff. CT angiography is useful for determining the presence or absence of ongoing arterial hemorrhage. This has a 98 to 100% negative predictive value. The contraindications of angiography slash embolization is not clearly defined. The technique involves selective embolization of identifiable bleeding sources. In patients with uncontrolled bleeding after selective embolization, bilateral temporary internal iliac embolization may be effective. Complications include gluteal necrosis and impotence. As far as definitive treatment, let's do a quick overview by the Young and Burgess classification. So for APC1s, this is managed non-operatively and with protected weight bearing. APC2s are treated with an anterior symphocele plate or external fixator, plus or minus posterior fixation. And APC3 is treated with an anterior symphocele multi-hole plate or external fixator, and posterior stabilization with SI screws or plate slash screws. Moving on to lateral compression type pelvic injuries, an LC1 is treated non-operatively. Protected weight-bearing is carried out for a complete comminuted sacral component, and weight-bearing as tolerated can be employed for simple, incomplete sacral fractures. The treatment for an LC2 pelvis is open reduction and internal fixation of the ilium. Treatment of an LC3 pelvis is posterior stabilization with a plate or SI screws as needed. Percutaneous versus open is based on the injury pattern and surgeon preference. Finally, in the setting of a vertical shear injury, this is treated with posterior stabilization with a plate or SI screws as needed. Again, percutaneous or open is based on the injury pattern and the surgeon's preference. Now let's go over treatment options of pelvic ring injuries in a bit more detail. Again, pelvic ring injuries can be treated non-operatively or operatively. Non-operative management includes weight-bearing is tolerated. This is indicated for mechanically stable pelvic ring injuries, which include an LC1 pelvis or an APC1 pelvis. Again, an LC1 pelvis is characterized as an anterior impaction fracture of the sacrum and oblique ramus fractures with less than 1 cm of posterior ring displacement. An APC1 pelvis is a traumatic widening of the symphysis of less than 2.5 centimeters with an intact posterior pelvic ring. Other indications for non-operative management with weight-bearing as tolerated include isolated pubic ramus fractures and parturition-induced pelvic diastasis, and in these cases, bed rest and a pelvic binder should be employed in the acute setting with diastasis less than 4 centimeters. Operative options include ORIF, anterior subcutaneous pelvic fixator, otherwise known as an infix, and diverting colostomy. An ORIF is indicated for symphysis diastasis of greater than 2.5 cm, SI joint displacement of greater than 1 cm, sacral fracture with displacement of greater than 1 cm, displacement or rotation of the hemipelvis, open fracture, as well as chronic pain and diastasis in parturition-induced diastasis or in the acute setting where there is symphysial widening of greater than 4-6 cm. The technique for open fractures includes aggressive debridement according to open fracture principles. The anterior subcutaneous pelvic fixator or infix has the same indications as an anterior external fixation and symphysial plating. Complications of this include heterotopic ossification, femoral nerve injury, and or infection. A diverting colostomy should be considered in open pelvic fractures, especially with extensive perineal injury or rectal involvement. Now let's go over some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail, specifically pelvic binding, external fixation, ORIF, and we'll also talk about rehabilitation. As far as the technique for pelvic binding, the pelvic binder is centered over the greater trochanters to effect indirect reduction. Make sure you do not place the pelvic binder over the iliac crest slash abdomen, as this is ineffective and precludes assessment of the abdomen. You may augment the pelvic binder with internal rotation of the lower extremities and taping at the ankles. Make sure you transition to alternative fixation as soon as possible, as prolonged pressure from the binder or sheet may cause skin necrosis. Keep in mind that working portals may be cut in the sheet to place percutaneous fixation. Again, remember that early pelvic binding and CT have been associated with underestimation of pelvic ring instability fluoroscopic exam under anesthesia can be used to assess stability in these circumstances. Moving on to external fixation, this option theoretically works by decreasing pelvic volume. It also enhances the stability of bleeding bone surfaces and the venous plexus in order to form a clot. Remember that pins are inserted into the ilium. This can be done with supraacetabular pin insertion you can also do a single pin in the column of the superacetabular bone from the A.I.I.S. towards the P.S.I.S. An obturator outlet view can help to identify the pin entry point. An iliac oblique view helps to direct the pin above the greater sciatic notch. An obturator oblique inlet view helps to ensure pin placement within the inner and outer table. Keep in mind that the A.I.I.S. pins can place the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve at risk. Finally, keep in mind that pedicle screws with an internal subcutaneous bar may be used. Other options for pins being inserted into the ilium include a superior iliac crest pin insertion, as well as multiple half pins in the superior iliac crest. With this latter option, make sure to place the pins in the thickest portion of the ilium, otherwise known as the gluteal pillar. These pins may be placed with minimal fluoroscopy. Moving on to ORIF, let's talk about anterior ring stabilization, posterior ring stabilization, anterior and posterior ring stabilization, as well as ipsilateral acetabular and pelvic ring fractures. For anterior ring stabilization, a single superior plate can be applied through a rectus-splitting, phanasteel approach. This may be performed in conjunction with laparotomy or a GU procedure. In a posterior ring stabilization, options include anterior SI plating, iliosacral screws that are placed percutaneously, or posterior SI tension plating. With an anterior SI plating option, keep in mind that you risk L4 and L5 injury with placement of anterior sacral retractors. As far as percutaneous iliosacral screws, this is good for sacral fractures and SI dislocations. Remember the safe zone is in the S1 vertebral body. An outlet radiograph view best guides superior-inferior screw placement, and an inlet radiograph view best guides anterior-posterior screw placement keep in mind the complication of an L5 nerve root injury with errors in screw placement. Remember that the entry point is best viewed on the lateral sacral view and pelvic outlet views. The risk of loss of reduction is highest in vertical sacral fracture patterns. Moving on to posterior SI tension plating, remember that this option can have prominent hardware complications. With respect to anterior and posterior ring stabilization, this is necessary in vertically unstable fractures. Finally, in the setting of ipsilateral acetabular and pelvic ring fractures, in general, reduction and fixation of the pelvic ring should be performed first. With respect to rehabilitation, stable fractures are treated non-surgically. Patients may mobilize immediately with protected weight-bearing after a stable fracture pattern is confirmed. This may require post-mobilization views to confirm stability. In the setting of unstable fracture patterns that are treated surgically, Patient mobility and weight-bearing depends on the location of the posterior pelvic ring fracture. Mobility includes weight of limb weight-bearing ipsilateral to the posterior pelvic injury with full weight-bearing on the contralateral side. Patients with bilateral posterior pelvic ring injuries should be limited to -to bed-to-chair transfers only. And finally, when radiographic healing has occurred, weight-bearing can be gradually advanced. Now let's finish this review session talking about some complications, specifically urogenital injuries, neurologic injuries, DVT and pulmonary embolism, chronic instability, and infection. With respect to urogenital injuries, these are present in 12-20% to of patients with pelvic fractures. There is a higher incidence in males, specifically in 21% of cases. Urogenital injuries include posterior urethral tears or a bladder rupture. Posterior urethral tear is the most common urogenital injury with a pelvic ring fracture. In the setting of a bladder rupture, you may see extravasation around the pubic symphysis, and this is associated with a mortality rate of 22-34%. to 34%. The diagnosis of a urogenital injury is made with a retrograde urethrocystogram. Indications for a retrograde urethrocystogram include blood at the meatus, a high-riding or excessively mobile prostate, and or hematuria. Treatment of urogenital injuries can include a suprapubic catheter placement or surgical repair. Suprapubic catheter is a relative contraindication to anterior ring plating. With respect to surgical repair, ruptures should be repaired at the same time or prior to definitive fixation in order to minimize infection risk. As far as complications of urogenital injuries, long-term complications are common in up to 35% of cases. Urethral stricture is most common, impotence is another potential complication, anterior pelvic ring infection, incontinence, or parturition sequelae for example, cesarean section. Moving on to neurologic injury, remember that the L5 nerve root runs over the sacral joint, and it may be injured if the SI screw is placed to anterior. Anterior subcutaneous pelvic fixators may give rise to lateral femoral cutaneous injury, which is most common, or femoral nerve injury. Moving on to DVT and pulmonary embolism, DVT is seen in approximately 60% of cases, pulmonary embolism in approximately 27% of cases, and fatal pulmonary embolism in approximately 2% of cases. Prophylaxis is obviously essential, so employ mechanical compression, pharmacologic prevention with either low molecular weight heparin or Lovenox, or vena cava filters in the setting of a closed head injury. Moving on to chronic instability, this is a rare complication but can be seen in non-operative cases. This presents with subjective instability and mechanical symptoms, and is diagnosed with alternating single-leg stance pelvic radiographs. Finally, with respect to infection, risk factors include obesity, diabetes, prolonged operation time, prolonged ICU stay, larger amounts of packed red blood cell transfusions, associated genitourinary and abdominal trauma, and open fractures. Keep in mind that preoperative angioembolization is controversial. That's all for this review about pelvic ring fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. Because this is a relatively lengthy topic, Look out for a separate episode completely dedicated to questions about pelvic ring fractures, and hopefully this episode will have prepared you for that question review session. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.